Welcome to a mini-sode of the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. We are always looking to welcome new people to our stage, whether seasoned storytellers or brand new performers. If you've never been to a Hearsay, this collection of a few unforgettable stories from past shows can help you get a sense of what stories on stage sound like. When you're inspired to tell your own story, visit the Pitch Your Story page on the Hearsay Storytelling website. The first story on this minisode was told by Matt Soderquist at a show where the theme was, Go Hearsay, It's Your Birthday. So I log into my bank account like every other morning, except this morning is December 11th, my birthday. In this birthday morning, I have a mystery gift. And the only clue is a negative $900 available balance in my checking account. So I thought for a minute, well, maybe my wife bought me something really nice. <laughs> and when I called her, she laughed out loud and she was quite amused. We were newly married and basically living paycheck to paycheck, so the thought of spending about $1,200 on a birthday gift just a couple weeks prior to Christmas amused her. <laughs> but I contacted the bank, and they froze the account, but the money was already gone. And when the charges cleared later in that afternoon, we found out that someone had purchased nine $100 gift cards from a Walmart in Atlanta, Georgia, and also a couple hundred more dollars at several gas stations throughout the state. Now to dispute these charges, I had to make a police report. So I go down to the police station and I give them all the information. And the nice police officer gives me an incident report number and he says, oh, the bank will handle the rest. And I was like, um, someone just stole $1,200 from me and you're not going to do anything? And he said, I, I, I said, there's, there's so many leads. I said, we have transaction numbers from a Walmart store. Walmart has surveillance video cameras. We can get the surveillance video camera of these checkout lanes, and we can at least find out what this person looks like. I said, not to mention the half dozen gas stations throughout the state. At least one of these gas stations has got to have a surveillance camera. I'm talking a make and model of the vehicle, a color, maybe even a license plate number. Hell, if we run a DMV check, we might get a birth date, social security <laughs> number address and a phone number for this guy. And they said, yeah, we don't do that. And my head is about ready to explode, and I'm thinking to myself, is this really the state of the police work in our country? <laughs> but I, I didn't really start to panic until the bank said it might be 10 or 12 days until the funds were reimbursed. <coughs> so I went out in the garage and I grabbed all the pop bottles I had and I started wrapping all the change I had 
in the bedroom. And I went and bought a couple of loaves of bread and some milk for the kids. And I thought to myself, I could track this guy down. <laughs> I've tracked people down with less information and much fewer resources. About a year prior, I'd got a call from the police, and they had just arrested this mom's boyfriend on assault charges. Only he hadn't assaulted her. He had assaulted her six-year-old son. Now, the six-year-old son, Johnny, had a men's size 12 boot print bruise on his back. And when we interviewed the mom's boyfriend at the county jail, he wouldn't give us any information. But Johnny, he liked to talk. And Johnny said that mom's boyfriend had held him down with his boot in the bathroom because he refused to get in the scalding hot shower that he was trying to put him in. And Johnny had to watch his two-year-old brother get that same scalding hot shower. Now, I've removed dozens of kids from drug-addicted newborns to homeless teenagers. And a lot of people ask me, how do you do that? How do you remove kids? And I always tell them the same thing. I said, it's not the ones that we removed that keep me up at night. It's the ones where we didn't have enough evidence. We don't have enough proof, even though we can feel it deep down in our gut that just something is not right. We don't have enough to take any action. So we left Johnny and his siblings with their mom. Mom and her boyfriend had a new baby, but you know, mom promised there'd be no contact with the boyfriend if he was released from jail. And about two days before Christmas, the judge just had pity on this man and released him on bond. And I went to the store around the corner from my house day before Christmas, day before Christmas Eve, to get some extra wrapping paper. And the mom worked at this store, and she didn't see me, but I checked out, and she was at the service counter. And on Christmas morning, as my kids were unwrapping their presents, I couldn't stop thinking about Johnny and wondering what his Christmas morning was like. You know, was he getting to open up any presents this morning? I was wondering how his back was doing, that men's size 12 boot print. So my first day back to the office, I swung around to their apartment to see how they were doing. I peeked in the window, and it was completely cleaned out. Phone calls went unanswered. The kids never came back to school. The police tracked the boyfriend south of town but lost, but lost him when he got out of state. Now, sometimes when we'd get a complaint about a family not having enough food, we could track their food purchases and help them maintain a budget. And so I tracked her food purchases. And I tracked the mom downstate. And I tracked her for a week as she traveled across the country, from gas station to gas station, from grocery store to grocery store, 
until all that she had left was a dollar and 58 cents. And then there was no activity for weeks. I wasn't sure if she stopped traveling or if she just stopped purchasing food. I contacted the local authorities where she had last purchased something and they sent out, they sent out a notice to all the schools to see if these kids were ever enrolled. After several weeks, still no hits. My soup told me to close the case. I ran the card one last time, and the day prior, the mom spent her last dollar and 58 cents. And she spent it at a store that she had worked at when she lived in Michigan. And I thought, I wonder if she works there. And so I called the worker, and I said, hey, Mom just spent her last buck. Why don't you go check this place out? And I didn't hear back for a couple days. We sent all of our police reports. We sent all of our pictures. We sent all of our evidence. And the worker out of state called me, and she said, Matt, I went to the store, but the mom wasn't working. But she does work there. And the manager gave me her home address. And I went to the home with the police and all three of those boys were there. And the boyfriend is sitting on the couch. And we arrested the boyfriend and those boys are safe. And we never caught the guy who stole 1200 bucks from me on my birthday. And after a few days, the bank reimbursed all the funds and gave me a new account. But what nobody understands about this kind of public service work is that every now and then, you're the one who gets to put a boot-sized print on a bad guy. And I'm not supposed to talk about that when I visit my kid's school on career day. <laughs> and it doesn't get me very far in the locker room with the guys. But it's hard to beat when you actually get to do it. Thank you. The next story was told by Nancy Baker at a show where the theme was awkward. So when I was a high school teacher, I used to get the biggest pushback from my students when I taught The Grapes of Wrath. Now, it's a 30-chapter novel. I get it. I remember looking out at my uh, class the first day that I handed out the copies, and one kid, I still remember his name is Peter, sat in the front, and he was holding it out at arm's length like it was a cinder block, and he goes, what did this guy get paid by the pound? <laughs> you know, it's a big book, I understand. But probably what didn't help it also was the topic. And you know, when you're 16, you have certain topics that are really fun for you, one of them is not the depression. <laughs> 
And this isn't just a book that slogs through 30 chapters of the Depression. It's the Great Depression. So, um, and in a word, that topic is depressing. So I understood it. But, you know, that time period isn't exactly ancient history, even though my students sort of thought it was. And many people who are still alive walking this earth experience the Depression. And one of those is my father-in-law, Bob. Now, um, he particularly bears the scars of this very, very troubling time. He's the son of Dutch immigrants. Um, his father, with a few belongings, a wife and two children, came over from Leiden in 1921 on a boat filled with tulip bulbs, and they landed in Boston, and he somehow made his way to Michigan. Um, by 1930, um, my father-in-law, Bob, had come along, um, the family had uh, managed to buy a small house. Uh, his father, Jacobus, had found a job. And they were sort of living the immigrant dream. However, by 1932, Bob's two infant brothers, his 10-year-old sister and his 36-year-old mother, were all um, buried in the... Uh, Grace Lawn Cemetery in Flint, Michigan. So things were not going very well for the family, obviously. So Bob's father, in a terrible, desperate attempt to keep his job at Fisher Body and his family together, which now consisted of six children, he switched to the night uh, work, the night shift, so he could be home during the day as much as possible. He put his eldest, his 12-year-old daughter, Eleanor, in charge of her younger siblings, and then he did something else he gave Bob away to a person who, lit, who worked on the line with him who couldn't have children of his own. And he was a very nice man named Leon Cornell and his wife, Pearl. Uh, they said that if he couldn't handle the one-and-a-half-year-old, now that he didn't have a wife, that they would gladly take him and raise them as, as his, as theirs. So Bob grew up with the love of these new parents not even realizing until he was an adolescent that that group of five blonde, blue-eyed kids who lived across town with the funny Dutch name, who he ran into sometimes at the Fisher Body family picnic or the Sunday or Saturday matinee, were actually his siblings. But he went to college. He got married um, to Sally, a girl from Midland. Um, and that he did a short stint in the Korean War. And he got on with his life and you know, knew that he was loved. And he had a family of his own. Bob is now 85 years old, but he is still very much a child of the Depression. And one of the vestiges of that time is that he is extremely frugal. And it's a trait kind of fueled by this nagging feeling that maybe those times might come around again um, and make people do desperate things like give away their children. Um, Maybe the frugality is in his DNA. After all, he is Dutch. And if you are traveling in Europe and you say, I don't want to spend any money in restaurants and hotels, and instead I eat bread and cheese on park benches and people watch and I camp, that is actually calling traveling Dutch style. And we all know what Dutch means in the United States when you go on a date. My husband, who is the descendant of these Dutch people, and I, we call it our first date was a double Dutch because we each paid for our own Heinekens. So um, yeah. that was really awesome. So um, when Bob traveled with his family, he definitely traveled Dutch style. 
So, for example, every summer he would take his whole family up to the Georgian Bay in Canada where they would rent a small shack. And it was just perfect because it was this economical vacation away from any kind of temptation of luxury and spending. And you basically made your family fish for their free lunch and dinner all week long. <laughs> so every year they had this long, arduous journey up to the Georgian Bay, and the three boys would sit in the back seat and do the things that three boys did in the 1960s before there were things like iPads, like punch each other in the arm, and play license plate bingo, until they would finally get just you know miserable and start to say, can we please stop somewhere? Well, in Bob's world, there were no stops. There was no wasted time, there was no air conditioning, it was a hell-bent baton death march towards Canada. Come hell or high water, we're gonna get there and maybe we'll stop for gas, maybe. But they would every year say, can't we please stop somewhere, Dad? And what they would always ask for was the same thing, they would say, can we stop for Dairy Queen? And it would go like this. Hey, Dad, Dad. Dad, can we stop for Dairy Queen? We're all really hungry. It's really hot back here. It's on exit 30, the billboard just said. Can we stop there, please? And Bob would say, oh, okay, guys, exit 30, fine. Okay, Dad, so that was exit 28 that we just passed. Get over in the right lane, because it's going to be coming up in two more exits. Okay, boys, I'm putting on my, I'm going into the right, okay. Okay, Dad, that was exit 29. Put your signal on. The exit 30 is coming up. There it is. Look, guys, there it is. There it is. There. Dad! Dad! Oh. oh, I'm sorry, boys. Was that exit 30? Oh, I'm so sorry. Maybe next year. There is never a next year at Dairy Queen on any road trip of Bob's. Years later, again at school, uh, when uh, my now husband and I had had a lot of library time, and he decided that it was time <laughs> that I meet his family, he said, hey, you know what, my family's driving up, and then they're going up to Canada, where we always go fish, and I was like, ugh. And he said, they really want to meet you, because they know that we've been dating for a few months, um, so they want to take you out for dinner. So. In the early 1980s, if you attended school at one of the uh, large state schools here in uh, Michigan, you went to Pretzel Bell if your parents were paying, which is probably the worst name for a fine dining restaurant I have ever heard. Because as far as I could, it, they had no pretzels and it was nothing like Taco Bell. I don't know why it was called that, but <laughs> that's where we went. So we were there having Pretzel Bell and we were enjoying this nice meal. And, but when, when the waiter came over and said, does anyone want any coffee dessert, Bob shooed him away in disgust, like, no, no, just a check. Like the guy was asking if we wanted after dinner bong hits or something. <laughs> so I thought, what was up with that? Like clearly no one's having anything other than their meal. And um, so we go out into the parking lot and we're exchanging our like nice to meet you niceties. And Bob looks at me and he goes, did you notice I used my credit card for that? I said, well, no, I didn't, sir, you know, um, but great. And he said, well, you know, when I use my credit card, there's a chance that either the restaurant or the credit card will screw up, and Missy, that meal will be free. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I didn't really understand the depth of Bob's parsimony until Pearl, his adoptive mother, who had um, 
been really the only mother that he ever knew since his mom died when he was like a year and a half old. Um, she passed away, and something very weird happened in the family. Bob and his wife, Sally, and my husband's youngest brother, Bob, uh, Rob, were all living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and Grammy Cornell, as she was known, was in her late 80s, and she was there in a nursing home prior to her passing away. So my husband and I got our call. We received the call that Grammy has passed away, and we get the plan. Um, Bob and Sally and Rob are all going to get in the car, and they're going to drive to Traverse City because um, the funeral is going to be in Traverse City, and Grammy Cornell wants to be buried in the Cornell family plot in Buckley. And we said, okay, we're really, really sorry for the loss, and we'll be up there, and let's all meet at, at a hotel somewhere in Traverse City, and we're happy to pick you up at the airport. Well, Bob was like, there is no freaking way that um, he's going to buy three round-trip tickets at the last minute in peak season July for his family to come out there. Um, and, you know, why spend a few dollars when you can put everyone into the car pack a, a cooler full of warming sandwiches and drive 760 miserable miles in one day. So that was the plan. So my husband and I drove up from Chicago and we met at the hotel as planned and we pulled in and just a minute later, this big car pulls in. And you know, meeting up when there are um, funeral arrangements is never easy, it's never fun. But we noticed as they pulled in that they were driving a large white conversion van. And I looked at it, and I could tell it was them driving it, and I went, huh. I said, when did they buy a conversion van? And my husband goes, they didn't. They don't have a conversion van. So Bob gets out of the conversion van, and he's got this strange, determined look on his face, and he won't make eye contact with us. Sally gets out of the other side and throws us a look that can only be summed up by wine please now. <laughs> so my husband says, where's Rob? Did he end up not coming? Um, without a word, Bob goes around to the back of the conversion van and opens up the big back doors and out comes Rob bundled up in fleece. My husband looks at me and goes, what is going on? Why are you in fleece? It is 90 degrees. Why are you in this van? There aren't even any seats back there. He goes, oh my God, did you ride in the back of the van in that broken lawn chair that dad bought at a yard sale for a nickel? And Rob looks at us and goes, and thus ends the ride from hell. And then we look. And that's when we saw the box. Now, it was a sturdy cardboard box, about seven feet long and about three feet square. It was the kind of box you might put golf clubs in to go to Hawaii. Only there was no trip to Hawaii. And there were no golf clubs. Grammy Cornell was in the box. So, you know, you can look at this story two ways. Either 
What we have here is an incredibly frugal man who did not want to spend the money, which is thousands of dollars, on a one-way shipment of a body, um, and that maybe he personally bribed an undertaker in D.C. to illegally release an unembalmed corpse, put it in a box, rent a van, and drive like a bat out of hell across the country with the AC cranked before Grammy spoiled. We later heard that the mortician in Traverse City met him with an expression on his face of astonishment that um, was similar to one that might be if you had smuggled plutonium out of Virginia. Or the other way you can look at it is that the depression has some lasting effects on people. Maybe Bob just wanted to be with his mom a little bit longer. One final act of kindness and love, one final road trip with the woman who took him in and loved him as her own during a tragic time where actually a quarter of a million children were left to fend for themselves. You know, Steinbeck talked about this, and he said there are two effects to what had happened there in the 30s. And he said, the people in flight, strange things happened to them. Some bitterly cruel, and some so beautiful that faith was refired forever. And I would like to think that Bob came out of the Depression maybe a little bitter, but that his faith was mostly refueled. But I'll bet that even on that final fast road trip, though he dearly loves his family, that he did not stop for ice cream. Thank you. <laughs> Next up is a story that was told by Larry Heitman at a show where the theme was reunion. I was born and uh, raised in Detroit, and when I was eight years old, my dad bought me a bike, a two-wheel bike. And I'll tell you the truth, I was a little bit afraid of this bike because I'd seen kids crash them and get all skinned up. So I asked my dad about it, and he said, well, sit down at the table, we'll talk about it. That's where we had all our serious discussions at the table. So he took a quarter out of his pocket, and he said, let me see you stand it up. Well, I tried, and I couldn't do it. Then he took the quarter, and he spun it out into the middle of the table. And it spun for about 10 seconds, and it fell over. He said, it's the same way with your bike. All this spinning, the front wheel, the back wheel, the sprocket, the pedals, even your feet, all this spinning helps steady the bike. Then you steer it, make corrections. So it's called the electromagnetic gravitational force field, Larry. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks a lot. That's a big help, that gravitational force field, electromagnetic. Jeez. So he said, well, come on outside and I'll show you. So within 10 minutes, I'm riding it, no sweat. I mean, it was wonderful. I could get to places fast, and it was fun. Then he gave me a lot of safety instructions. The main thing was don't ride your bike on Warren Avenue. It's just, there's just too much traffic. Stay on our side of Warren Avenue. I said, yeah, Dad, I got it, I got it. 
Well, about two weeks later, I was riding my bike out Warren Avenue. <laughs> on the sidewalk, thank you. And it was a hot, it was a hot summer day, about 85, about 85 in the shade. And I had some allowance money, and I wanted the chocolate ice cream cone. But the only place that sold them was Robin's Drug Store, and it was on the other side of Warren. I couldn't go there. But I did come across a place called the Bedford Inn. It was on the corner of Bedford and Warren. And I walked inside, and it was a bar. And it was crowded. And the bartender did not look all that friendly. And he said, what can I do for you, Sonny? I said, well, I would like a chocolate ice cream cone, please. I have money, my allowance. <laughs> he said, we don't serve ice cream cones here. You'll have to leave. Well, the waitress overheard him. And she said, Pete, just go on back to the kitchen and get him uh, some ice cream out of the freezer. So he said, yeah, yeah, OK, whatever. So he came back with uh, uh, a paper cup with two scoops of chocolate ice cream and a spoon. He said, there's no charge, Sonny, but you'll have to eat it outside by your bike. I said, yes, sir. So I started walking out, and he said, and don't forget to bring the spoon back. I said, yes, sir. So I went out on my bike, ate the two scoops of chocolate ice cream. I dropped the paper cup in a trash container that stood by the curb. I walked back in and gave him the spoon back. But my fingers were sticky from the ice cream. And I said, can I have a napkin, please? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. And I said, would you put a little bit of water on it? <laughs> yeah, whatever. So I wiped off my sticky fingers, walked out, and dropped the napkin in the trash container and took off on my bike. Well, a couple of weeks later, it was another hot summer day, about 90 in the shade. And I walked into the Bedford Inn. He said, it's you. <laughs> the waitress nodded toward the kitchen. He said, chocolate ice cream, right? I said, yes, sir. So he came out of the kitchen with a paper cup, two scoops of chocolate ice cream, and a spoon. And I said, can I have a napkin, please? He said, yeah, yeah, sure, I forgot. <laughs> well, I didn't go back to the Bedford Inn again that summer, but the following summer, I would have been nine. It was another hot summer day, about 95 in the shade. I walked into the Bedford Inn, and the bartender said, it's you again. Did you have a good winter? And what's your name? I said, the winter was tolerable. <laughs> I'm Larry. Michigan, what can you say? <laughs> well, I'm not 100% sure that I said tolerable. I'd say it's probably 50-50, maybe 60-40. Because when I was a kid, I liked to use big words. And tolerable was one of my favorite words. I also like somewhat. <laughs> Start laughing. Mother uh, would say, Larry, did you like your spinach? It was tolerable. <laughs> and how do you like your, your new homeroom teacher? She's tolerable, somewhat. <laughs> like that.
Well, every summer for the next four or five years, I would go back to the Bedford Inn for ice cream. And one day I went in there early. It was in the morning and uh, the, there was nobody in the bar. And I found out the waitress' name was Jean. And she and Pete were married. And they owned the Bedford Inn. And Pete said, come on, Larry, you can sit with us. You don't have to go outside by your bike. So I came out of the kitchen with the ice cream. And uh, a spoon and a napkin and all that. But it was on a, in a dish. Plates and a, a cloth napkin and water. But sometimes you know. You just... You just know in your heart when something is perfect. And this was a smash. <laughs> Free ice cream with these two great people. So I had a chance to use my big words, and it made him laugh. But when I was 19, I got drafted into the Army. And uh, the Army requested that when we were on leave, that we, out in public, we wore our Class A uniforms. They were khakis, they were comfortable. So I was riding my car west on Warren Avenue wearing my Class A's, and it was a hot summer day, about 100 in the shade. <laughs> I made a U-turn and parked in front of the Bedford Inn and walked inside. And Pete and Jean were still there. They looked a little older, but hadn't been that long, really. So I walked up to the bar, and Pete said, what can I get you, soldier? I said, well, I'd like a paper cup with two scoops of chocolate ice cream with a spoon and a napkin, please. I have money. Thirty-seven fifty a month from the Army. He said, oh, my God, Larry, we wonder what happened to you. How have you been? We missed you, that kind of thing. And I said, I'm good. How are you and Gene? He said, we're great. I said, Pete, instead of the ice cream, I'll have a beer. He said, on me, Larry, some things never change. Well, Gene recognized me right away, and the three of us talked for a while. But uh, I said, Pete, would you do me a favor? Would you please let me buy you a dish of ice cream? He said, sure, Larry, I could use one. So he came out of the kitchen with two paper cups. Each one had two scoops of chocolate ice cream, spoons, and he remembered the napkins. What a guy. So it was time to leave, and I hugged Gene, and I shook Pete's hand. But I could see his eyes kind of glaze over a little bit, and he looked down at the napkins on the bar, and I could see his lower lip kind of quiver. He didn't shed a tear, but, but he came close. So I walked out of the Bedford Inn, but I didn't have a... I didn't have a paper cup or a napkin to drop in the trash container that still stood there by the curb. So I sat in my car for a few minutes thinking about what just happened, and I was the one that shed a few tears. But telling this story brings back memories. My dad, I can still hear his voice spinning that quarter. It's the electromagnetic gravitational force field, Larry, he said. He was probably right. He's a pretty smart guy. Memories of my bike and ice cream with Pete and Gene. And the next time I'm in Detroit, in my old neighborhood, 
I may drive by the Bedford Inn if it's still there, but I won't go inside because Pete and Jean won't be there. And I don't like messing with memories. Try to recreate something that's already perfect. It doesn't work. It's kind of like the old Burt Backrack song sung by Dionne Warwick. I'm sure you know it. Walk on by. Don't stop. Walk on by. Thank you. Our last story on this minisode was told by Elon Cameron at a show where the theme was calamity. <clears throat> on a sunny summer afternoon, I sent the following text to a group of our friends. I hear there's going to be a storm, but let's have a barbecue, unless the storm's bad. Those long, yawning days of sunshine and beach time and all the shit we have to do despite the fact that we live in a tourist town <laughs> and are surrounded by people who are on vacation. That feeling of pressure every moment you have, have the most fun available. And it's perhaps like some advanced form of FOMO, fear of missing out, caused by being around people who are seriously having more fun than we are. It's okay. I'm kind of used to that, though. I've had an anxiety disorder pretty much my whole life. When I was young, I was put in special ed because I couldn't sit still. My first grade teacher used to remove her polyester belt from her fancy jumper and tie me to my chair with it. How this may have informed my sexual proclivities is a story for another day. But yeah, that happened. I didn't know I was anxious. I didn't know what that meant. It was the 1980s and people couldn't even talk about quiche without bringing up gender politics. So they put me in special ed. It didn't help the anxiety, it just gave kids more reasons to pick on me. At that time I wasn't diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, PTSD, major depressive episodes, and though those features and symptoms of each crafted the structure of my days, I also wasn't diagnosed with attention deficit or dyslexia. A clarity of why I'd done so poorly in school was the least of the things those things taught me about myself. My diagnosis at age seven was minimal brain damage. <laughs> Thank you, Munson. I learned to live with anxiety. Adolescence was rough, but once I was in my teens, I sought meditation and martial arts, and I kept to my safe group of friends who loved me enough to tolerate my neurotic nature. I learned to cope because I had shit I wanted to do. Not everyone can do that, though. I don't know who to credit for my emotional fortitude or dumbass stubbornness. Probably my ancestors. Living with anxiety is an adventure. I learned a joke about it. Anxiety is the spice of life. <laughs> when I bopped around to psychiatrists, trying various expensive and shitty medications, and I found therapist, a sliding scale social worker, who took me on for 10 solid years. I know it's so rookie therapy to be all like, well, my therapist said this, and she, re she requested that I try that, and she's so encouraging. It's adorable and annoying, and if you find it really annoying, you probably need some therapy. <laughs> but I don't care. Jody Michaels saved my life. She was the first person who ever saw me have an anxiety attack and was able to tell me what it was. 
I didn't know much about what caused some of the symptoms that seemed to make me not just the base level of weird that I am today, but like super bonus weird. <laughs> I lived in a state of hypervigilance, which is an enhanced state of sensory sensitivity accompanied by an exaggerated intensity of behaviors whose purpose is to detect threats. Hypervigilance is also accompanied by a state of increased anxiety which can cause exhaustion. When I learned this term, I was surprised I wasn't named formally in the de definition. Example, Elon Cameron. <laughs> I like to call it hypervillage dance. It sounds so much more fun <laughs> and social. My therapist challenged me to try to use it in ways that were a little bit more interesting than just tormenting myself. So I started keeping track of things. I started recording details about individuals and I started keeping a journal. At a younger age, if I knew you, I would be able to tell you everything you'd ever worn that I'd seen, probably in chronological order. Way to make friends. <laughs> when I first met you, you were wearing a red and orange sweater. But before that, I'd seen you wearing that blue flannel and jeans. Yeah, not creepy at all. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm an only child. <laughs> I remember having an anxiety attack during a standardized test. It was one of those number two pencil bubble filling in kind of bullshit tests. And I just started making patterns because I was pretty sure I was going to be dead soon because my heart was pounding irregularly. I was thirsty and sweaty and I couldn't really see straight. So the most I could do was like fill in some kind of random pattern that felt like it was giving order to the universe at that moment. I was so fearful when I had anxiety that I thought I might be possessed by a demon or Satan or evil which was not very helpful because I was raised by an agnostic and an atheist who were just like, that's bullshit. It's like, okay, but what do I say when Satan comes for my soul, mom? <laughs> Working to live with anxiety has been like taming a giant wild creature, I assume. Despite my childhood obsession with Grizzly Adams, I've never actually bitten off that much. But when raging, it can ruin your entire day or your life and everything in it. I'm going to propose that if cared for and tended to, maybe it can also give you strengths. Taming the beast is so annoyingly grown up. It's things like drinking enough water and getting enough sleep and eating right and exercising and getting sunshine, taking time to study and be quiet and write. And at different times of my life, it's been necessary to have pharmaceutical intervention. But for the last 25 years, I've utilized a number of integrative modalities, which have been enormously helpful. Working to live with anxiety, I feel like it's just a friend you hate, and you get to know better, and then you hate less. <laughs> so back to that sunny summer day, Jen and I had both been working a ton, and we just really weren't taking any time for ourselves or fun, and we were getting that really downtrodden, cranky summertime feeling that was like, why is everyone having a blast and we just work all the time? <laughs> so we were like, okay, let's do this. We were at the store, we were gonna grill some meat and fish and even tofu. We had a selection of beverages that covered all the summer cocktail trends and we brought flowers and candles and every sort of produce that looked beautiful to us. I'd start massaging the kale the minute we got home. <laughs> Jen would prep the meats and we'd both do beverage service. We even planned a badass charcuterie board with cheeses, contraband, and all the garnishes. We hauled our cart 
out to our 15-year-old car and started to load it up. In this short span of minutes, the sky flashed dark, like the dusk that happens in the afternoon, and a chill accompanied by a brisk wind picked up quickly. I snapped a picture of the sky because I'd never seen clouds like that before, like a giant layer cake collapsing in the middle. We hopped in the car, a certain amount of urgency upon us, aware that the storm was going to be major. Not even a mile from the store, the shit hit the fan. There were fire trucks with their sirens blaring, blocking Division Street, our most obvious route home. We crossed on the numbered streets as we were able and had to redirect several times because of large trees blocking the passage. We made our way to Garfield. The wind was dumping rain in buckets the wipers had no chance to keep up with. Finally, we were closer, just three miles from home. And then a clap flash and a huge tree hit some electrical wires before falling on a car, which created a blast of sparks. We made a U-turn, backtracking blocks to find another way through. Jen started doing this yelling prayer thing that I had never <laughs> witnessed before. We'd been together about 12 years at that point, and I'd never heard her say, Dear Lord, please, Jesus, help us. Her whole body was shaking, and she was using the gas pedal like it was a pump organ. I made a joke. You sound awfully Christian right now. She barely nodded. We took a turn, and trees were literally flying by our view. Trunks the size of my ample plus-sized body flew past us, as if we were in the Wizard of Oz. What's happening for me in this moment, though, is so vastly different from her, because I shifted into this weird zen-like state, where I'm totally calm and have a cl crystal clear path of exactly how we will get to our home. It's like I downloaded this weird map that has an actual you are here pin on it <laughs> and several different possible routes that are rated by color in their order of safety. I have no idea who to credit that for. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I was just in this place where I could tell that Jen, like if I yelled at her, it was gonna just shut everything down. So I got really calm and quiet and I explained, we will get home if you listen to everything I say and do exactly what I tell you to. And Jen was like, okay. And I was like, okay, squeeze your butt cheeks. Cause she's driving. <laughs> Anyone who's done public speaking knows that you're advised and you know, to squeeze major muscle groups of your body. You know, it's probably why I'm like always kind of slowly marching when I'm up here. I'm like, I'm just alternately clenching. But I, I, she's driving, and I know that if she's so flooded with adrenaline that she can't even listen, we're going to die. <laughs> like, so I'm like, you have to start coursing the adrenaline through your body. And she's like, okay, sweet Jesus, please save us. <laughs> we turned down so many side streets covered in branches and limb debris. I guided Jen around them where we were able and often had to redirect. We were almost a mile from our home. That road was the promised land. And a giant tree fell right in front of us, like slam on the brake style, came screeching to a halt right at this huge oak tree. And it fell about four feet from the house that was right there. 
And the nice people in the house had this sweet little garden. And God, I hope none of you are that person. But <laughs> they had these like two rows of beautiful irises. And Jen was like, I can't go that way. There's flowers. I'm like, they're going to get new flowers. There are no new us. And so we got to the other side of the tree, but then we both saw that there were open electrical wires on the road. And extrapolating from what I knew about lightning striking your car, that you would actually be safe because the rubber tires would act as an insulator, I extrapolated and decided, this is totally fine, keep going. <laughs> Which fortunately it was, but my electrician uncle nearly killed me when he heard that. So, we were able to get to the other side of that. We drove over some large limbs and definitely heard some strange clunking noises coming from the undercarriage of the car. We saw trees fall on houses and on cars and dozens on roads. I was watching carefully. My senses felt acute. I was tactical drill sergeant, and it was my job to get this freaking out kid and all of our goodies home. We made it to our house but there was a tree on our deck. And I don't mean like a little ornamental tree. I mean like a 40-year-old maple had just completely departed from the earth and crashed across the front of our house. And there was a 20-year-old white pine across our driveway with several cedars. And Jen looked at me and said, how did you do that? The power was out, but we had food we could grill. We had a cooler full of ice and the ability to save some of the stuff from our fridge. We were both so shaken. We sent photos of our deck to our friends and we're like, barbecue off. <laughs> some of you know. I don't really know what gave me the ability to be calm in that situation. Maybe it was just sheer necessity and human instinct. But I have to think that it was my many decades of constantly preparing for ruin that could have led to a little bit of this. It was the function of all my sleepless nights and sweaty-handed days and the payoff for years of fearful thinking and surviving anyway. I'm not trying to polish a turd. Anxiety is not awesome. <laughs> it doesn't make you better but maybe it can save your life and it can inform your survival instinct in a way that makes you mighty and strong like a giant wild creature. If you have anxiety or any of the diagnoses I've talked around, you're not alone. You don't have to be alone with the suffering. I feel like Grizzly Adams sometimes, sitting with my evening tea by the fire while this dangerous beast snoozes at my feet, but at least the thing sleeps now. Thanks. You can listen to even more stories and full episodes by checking out our podcast, which is available on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. And don't forget, when you're ready to submit a pitch to tell your own story, visit the Pitch Your Story page on the Hearsay Storytelling website. Mm -hmm.